Hello, friends. It's August 9th. I hope you are well, feeling fine, and ready for further discovery as we intend to walk in the light of God's Word this day, the ninth day of August, the 221st day of our reading through the Bible. My name is David McAdam, and this is the One Year Bible Tour Guide. We are so glad to have you with us. We hope that these podcasts will make the Bible more accessible and Bible reading more widespread, as it is through reading God's Word that we are enlightened as to God's provision for salvation. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. To be poor in spirit means that we admit our bankruptcy and own up that we in ourselves don't have the righteousness, the price of admission, to enter the kingdom of heaven. We lack the impeccable righteousness that God requires to be in His presence. Someone else must pay the price of admission for us. That's what Yeshua did, Jesus, whose name means God to the rescue. He satisfies God's demands for righteousness on our behalf through His life of perfect obedience and His death that provided perfect atonement. All who look to Him, the crucified and risen Savior, are granted the gift of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Unless you are born again, that is, born again of an incorruptible seed, given through faith in Christ, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. As we have been reading through the Old and New Testaments, we have discovered that it is the person of Christ Himself who is our only hope of glory, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He is named the Lord our righteousness in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, and chapter 33, verse 16. He is the fulfillment of all the righteous requirements of the moral law, and His redemptive work on the cross fulfills all the ceremonial law. And He is the new temple. It is in Him that we dwell. It is in Him that we have eternal life. It is in Him that we have access to God the Father, life in the Spirit and are able to commune with Him and each other and worship Him. It is our prayer that you will gain this wisdom by reading the Scriptures and that you will hold fast to Him by faith. God is not a man that He should lie. His Word is true. Jesus, who is the personification of truth in John 14:6, said in John chapter 6, verse 37, The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And in verse 40 of that same chapter, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, in our Old Testament reading, we are in Jerusalem in the 5th century B.C. The temple is the placeholder for the gospel. The gospel needs to be properly defended, maintained, and kept pure. Jerusalem, or Mount Zion, is a placeholder for the fulfillment of God's purposes in Christ. The people of God need to be born of her. Let's read about this scribe, Ezra, who intends to defend the revelation of God's will as written in the law. Let's pick up the narrative in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Ezra is about to lead a remnant from Babylonia to Jerusalem, and he is calling for a time of fasting and prayer for protection before he leaves. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. 
for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand six hundred and fifty talents of silver and silver vessels worth two hundred talents and one hundred talents of gold, twenty bowls of gold worth one thousand derricks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them, until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jozabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Chapter 9. Ezra Prays About Intermarriage After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard of this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush 
to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And this is the end of our reading from the Old Testament portion from the book of Ezra. Let's take a few moments to recap and reflect. Yesterday we looked at Ezra the man. He was a man of the word. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses in chapter 7 verse 6. He not only studied it, but he put it into practice. He taught it to others. He serves as a good example of what it means to be a man or a woman of the word. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we read, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. The role of the scribe will continue for four centuries until the time of Christ. Ezra is the fountainhead of this office, becoming prominent in God's economy. G. Campbell Morgan explains, Quote, During the time of the monarchy of the United Kingdom, a scribe was a royal secretary. During the later period of the disrupted kingdom, the scribes had become men whose business it was to copy and to study the laws of the nation. With Ezra, a new order began. The scribes now became men whose chief business was to interpret the law and apply it to all the changing conditions of life and to the new circumstances constantly arising. As messengers of the will of God, they took the place of the prophets with this difference. Instead of receiving new revelations, they explained and applied the old. Of this new order, Ezra was at once 
the founder and type, end quote. Today we see Ezra taking action. First, he proclaims a fast. In chapter 8, verse 21, he knows the five-month journey from the river Ahava at Babylon to Jerusalem is going to be dangerous. The people would be traveling approximately 900 miles on foot. Instead of hiring security forces, Ezra puts his trust in God and makes an earnest appeal to God for a safe journey through prayer and fasting. He was aware that he had made a claim to the king of Persia that the Lord God of Israel would protect them. So he was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany his fellow travelers. Instead, he sought the Lord to provide for their safety, and God answered his prayer. It would seem that Ezra brings every detail before the Lord in prayer. Do you do this? Ezra sets apart twelve of the leading priests and puts them in charge of the precious materials that were to be brought to the house of God in Jerusalem. He reminds them that they and the gifts that they bear are to be consecrated to the Lord. The journey begins in Ezra chapter 8, verse 31. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. Ezra chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. On the fourth day they take inventory and are assured that all the people and the materials for the house of God had arrived safely. They worshipped the Lord with burnt offerings of thanksgiving. Ezra the Reformer Ezra receives a report from the leaders and is grieved to hear of the mixed marriages that have once again brought spiritual corruption to the people. The leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. In Ezra chapter 9 verse 2, Ezra gives a public demonstration of his grief over the nation's sin, tearing his tunic, cloak, hair, and beard. His example gathers other people to join him in a public recognition of their sorrow until the time of the evening sacrifice. Ezra intercedes on behalf of his people, citing their guilt on account of their shameful disobedience. He acknowledged that they were being shown a brief moment of grace, an opportunity for reviving the testimony of the temple once again, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 9 verse 9. The NIV translation helps us to see the New Testament application and our calling to be co-laborers with God in the building of His house. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, and He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. In Ezra's prayer of repentance, he contrasts God's clear commands in Scripture with clear examples of Israel's disobedience. In Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. Yet he proclaims that God has punished them less than their sins deserve. In verse 13. Ezra acknowledges the gospel truth of God's righteousness and that they are deserving of God's wrath. He makes a confession for the people of the covenant. O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. 
Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Ezra 9, verse 15. Now let's move on to our next stop on our Bible tour to the New Testament where we will be reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. We are realizing how sexual immorality defiles the church. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And this is the ending of our New Testament portion today from the book of 1 Corinthians. The importance of church discipline is emphasized in this passage. Paul has learned that the Corinthians are tolerating blatant sexual immorality in their midst. A man has taken his stepmother to bed. Rather than confronting the man with his need for repentance, the church has turned a blind eye and perhaps approved it with a false understanding of God's grace. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for not putting him out of fellowship in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. The principle of church discipline is to promote restoration of wayward sinners to genuine fellowship with God and His people. The unrepentant person who is continuing in sin and presuming that they are walking in the light when they are walking in darkness must be confronted with the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who was practicing sin deceived himself into thinking that he was still in fellowship with God. The church was complicit in his deception by not disciplining him. By being handed over to Satan and deprived of the benefits of Christian fellowship, it is hoped the guilty party would be left alone with their sin, recognize its sinfulness, become honest with God, repent, return, and be restored to the church. Paul calls the church to corporate holiness. Be who you truly are. Just as leaven, symbolizing sin, is purged from households on the Passover feast, so the act of putting away sin logically accompanies taking Christ as your Lord and Savior, for He is our Passover Lamb, and died that sin should be put away. 
Sin corrupts the person and the crowd. It is like a contagious virus that spreads. While we are to pursue holiness and fulfill the Great Commission by working among those in the world and rescuing those who are lost from sin, we are not to associate with those who profess to be Christians but do not exhibit a changed life. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 We are not permitted to align ourselves with false brethren. Paul clarifies that those who exhibit a consistent behavioral pattern of the forementioned sins and claims to be a Christian are self-deceived. While we are not to have a critical or judgmental spirit, we are to humble-heartedly exercise discernment, judge righteously, and seek to restore brothers and sisters who have gone astray. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now let's move on to our next stop in our Bible tour, in the Bible's Song and Prayer Book, the Book of Psalms, Psalm 31, verses 1 through 8. Into your hand I commit my spirit. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. This concludes today's reading from the book of Psalms. This psalm is another cry for help. The psalmist recognizes his immediate need for all that the Lord has revealed himself to be, a rock of salvation, a refuge and fortress, a present help, a guide and counselor. We have the words that a thousand years later would be heard on the lips of the Messiah. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. The psalmist is aware of the importance of keeping his heart consecrated to God. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. Psalm 31, verse 6. He also rejoices in God's love, His mercy, and deliverance. And now we conclude our reading for today with Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. We have seen examples of this in our Old Testament and New Testament readings. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 10, verse 20 and stirred Cyrus's heart in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the New Testament, God opened Lydia's heart in Acts 16, verse 14. 
Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So how important it is for us to subject what is right in our own eyes to what is revealed to be right in the eyes of the Lord through Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, help us to realize our calling as men and women of the Word. Ready our hearts to study it, practice it, and teach it, that the body of Christ would be edified and those who are lost might be awakened to their need for your salvation. You are our rock, our refuge, and fortress. Thank you for sending your Son to be our Passover lamb and take away our sins. His perfect representation as substitute has caused you to impart the spirit of holiness to live within us, empowering us to cast out the leaven of sin and live for your glory. Stir our hearts to do what is pleasing to you today rather than what is right in our own eyes. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. What a rich time of fellowship we've had this day in the Word. I trust you are encouraged and hope you will be with us tomorrow as we continue in the book of Ezra and 1 Corinthians. If you would like to know more about our ministries or would like a written copy of our commentary on each day's portion, you can subscribe at our website, newlife.org. And if you would like to contact us with any comments or questions, you can write us at podcast at newlife.org. So until next time, may the grace and the love of Christ our Savior be with you through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Shalom.